I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. I want to start this show out by saying this. Meat Eaters American History, The Long Hunters, 1761 to 1775, is out now. When you get to the end of this episode, you're going to hear a, a long, I don't want to call it long, you're going to hear a very good explanation of what this project is and why you want to buy it. Just pre- be prepared for that. Like When you get to the end of the episode, get your credit card out and go to wherever you buy your audiobooks because you're going to be like, damn, I'm buying that. Um, so get to the end, and I'm going to tell you a lot about it. I'm going to just convince you just how good it is. It's really good. We've been talking about it a long time. This is narrated by me, Stephen Ranella, and Clay Newcomb from the Bear Grease Podcast. And it is a audio original. It's like an audio book that you listen to. Okay. And it's called Meat Eaters American History, The Long Hunters, 1761 to 1775. It tells one of the most bloody hair-raising stories of hunting in, in American history. It's out now, but listen to the show, enjoy the show, but know that at the end of the show that you're about to listen to, I'm going to give you this, the, the sales pitch to end all sales pitches. So you can, if you're not convinced, you can listen and be convinced, or you can just know that you'll be convinced and buy it now. I don't really care. I just want you to get it and start listening because this is one of the things that, that I've made that I'm most proud of. Meat Eaters American History, The Long Hunters, available now and explained in greater detail at the end of the show, so stay tuned. Okay, everybody, I'm very, very excited to announce that I am seated here with the writer and film director, Werner Herzog, who's made over 60 films and documentaries. 
um, including many I'm sure you heard of and a bunch of them that you better uh, have seen. Little Dieter Needs to Fly, Rescue Dawn, the famous, in my circle of people, Grizzly Man, Happy People, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which I believe is your only film that I managed to catch when it released in a theater in New York. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Uh, His films deal with extremes, with struggle, with absurdity, with madness, with happiness, and many are fused, in my opinion, with a very unique perspective on nature and the natural world. Uh, If you read about Herzog, you'll, you'll often find writers describing it his work as man against man against nature man versus nature uh we'll find out if he describes it that way i'm guessing he doesn't as i believe that that description would imply that nature is aware of man as an adversary um mr herzog a couple of your own quotes the universe is monstrously indifferent to the presence of man you also once said i believe the common denominator of the universe is not harmony but chaos, hostility, and murder. Now, many documentarians who deal with the natural world, I find personally, seem to reflect uh, the relationship with nature sometimes feels to me as though it's as though it's taught, as though it's something they picked up or learned from their peers. It's oftentimes political. Um, but our guest here today, I feel that the things he has to say about the natural world and the way that the natural world plays into his movies is wholly original. Um, influenced me immensely, not just as a writer or a TV person, but but as a human. I'd say for me on par with Cormac McCarthy because both have these immense bodies of work that interplay together as something that is not schizophrenic meaning they 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 carry this sort of intellectual trademark um and the last little bit of introduction i'll say and this is a very inside joke um when i'm arguing with production people which i do in my line of work uh i've a lot of times dealt with camera guys producers that want to catch the entirety of a process and if they can't catch the entirety of a process, they don't want to use it. And I will say to them in shorthand, I will take a line from happy people and I will say, the nets were set the night before because there's a scene in happy people which chronicles the lives of Siberian fur trappers and subsistence hunters. And there's a scene that opens where they're just checking a net. And my camera guys would have been like, well, we can't use that. We never saw you set the net. To which I will refer them to happy people and I will say to them, the nets were sent the night before. And that's it. Go on with your movie. (laughs) Go on with your movie. Uh, I want to start our conversation to talk a little bit about your... uh, your childhood, which I was like, like I said, my avenue to you and your work has, has just been your movies. I've, I've been a fan of your movies for such a long time. Um, and it wasn't until I read your, your new book, which I haven't finished yet, but started your new book. Um, tell me, it's every man for himself and God against all your, your life story. Us, yeah. yeah. I didn't realize the extent of the poverty that you grew up in. 
well, it's easy to imagine when you grew up um, at the end of the Second World War and then mostly post-war time. And you have to imagine a scenario where everybody here in the country, in the United States, is very well aware how uh, Ground Zero looked at 9-11, mm -hmm. after 9-11. Uh, complete devastation, but very limited, a very limited area on the island of Manhattan. But you have to imagine a, a whole country, Germany, where 720 or so cities were wiped out, the entire cities. Uh, some of the, them not as uh, um, completely, for example, Munich, where I was born, was only 80, 85% flattened and destroyed. And it was one of these Allied bombing raids, carpet bombings, that hit our neighborhood and uh, everything around destroyed. And I was only two weeks old, 14 days old. And where we lived was uh, partially destroyed. And my mother uh, picks me up from my cradle, which was covered with about a foot uh, high shards of glass and bricks and debris. But I was unhurt. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, you get when you're a mother, you naturally are scared. And she fled uh, with my older brother and me. Um, into the remotest mountain valley in, in, in the Alps, in Bavaria. And your dad had split out on you guys? Your dad wasn't in the picture at this time. He wasn't in the picture while he was in the war. Yeah. When, when, I, when I was born. I was born 1942. The war was over 1945. <clears throat> and um, when he came back, he very soon divorced. Uh, and we, my mother was a single a single mother and had to raise, then she had another boy, my younger brother. So she had to raise uh, three children and there was never enough to eat. So what I remember very well is uh, starving. Yeah, you tell a story and, yeah. of of, nag of a lesson you learned about nagging your mother, of you and your brother nagging your mother about how hungry you were and her saying, if I could take it from my ribs, I would take it from my ribs. Yeah, but I can't. But I can't. And you shut up, boys, and yeah. we, uh, of course, uh, that, that was a serious moment, and it's engraved in my memories. So, uh, and, and of course, it was not only food. We had literally nothing. Uh, um, for example, we don't have, didn't have mattresses. My mother stuffed burlap sacks with hay, that she made from fern. But when you cut the stem of a fern, uh, it hardens when it dries. It hardens like the tip of a sharp Yeah, you're saying pencil. she cut it with a scythe. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, she cut it with a scythe. And um, it, it, uh, you would feel it at night when you shift it around. All of a sudden, you were on two pencils that were stings, uh, stinging you. And, uh, and fern also hardens it's not like hay more fluffy it it becomes almost like cement and you have these little dents and i uh, i had to navigate the dents in my ma mattress so my entire childhood i never had a flat surface on which i slept and we had no running water you had to go to the well with a bucket 
and bring in the water and no sewage system, no heating, no toilet, no real, I mean a toilet, but an outhouse, which was adjacent to uh, to this little to this little house where we grew up. And you talk about eating a, a someone killing a crow or a raven. Yeah, yes, yes. And uh, you being surprised by the image, the seeing fat. Yeah, fat on a soup broth and being surprised yes. by the fat. <laughs> I never had seen anything like this, and, and until today, this means wealth. Or, for example, the first time I ate, I ate uh, a fried egg or an egg in my life, I must have been about ten or eleven, and it was like an incredible feast. Uh-huh. Never ate a chicken for me when I see, and even you see even. When you drive by the fast food Kentucky Fried Chicken, finger licking good, and it makes an impression on me, because chicken means the definitive feast. You you mentioned another detail of your mother getting a loaf of bread with food coupons or however yeah, you describe yeah. them, but then scoring the bread. Right in seven segments for each day, so that she would part, she would partition the bread, yeah, as the week's ration of bread, yeah. And in that passage, you mentioned you don't elaborate on it. And I, I was looking for you to elaborate on it. That you said that you you have no tolerance for the the culture of complaint. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, I get it, but but explain that to me. Um. Well. I cannot make it the norm how I grew up. It was an unusual, unusual childhood because it was uh, in the aftermath of a catastrophic war that Germany actually uh, had started, and uh, the catastrophe came uh, from our own people, from from our society, from our uh, leader Adolf Hitler, and it was uh, it was really. Uh, so bad that we knew uh, now what we got, we got. Mm. And uh, each one of us had a thin slice of bread per day. And uh, the kind of grooves that my mother carved into the loaf of bread, we knew this this was the only thing we have. Um, and of course, uh, she would also make some food from um, dandelion leaves and from syrup from... Uh, some some trees and uh, replacing sugar, which we didn't have. So um, when I see uh, in in our kinds of societies, Western, uh, highly technical societies, where a lot of food is being thrown away, in the United States, I think more than forty percent mm, yeah. of food, and I find it outrageous. And I never say anything because. It was my experience, and I know the value of food. I know uh, um, there's something uh, which has to be honored. And uh, it, in a way, it pains me when I see so much food being thrown away. Because of my experience, it was unusual. But I never I never speak out loud. Uh, but You don't chastise people <clears throat> for wasting no, food. No, for God's sake, I would be the last one. That's not in my nature, uh, because you have to de- determine how you live, and uh, whether you live a life of consumerism, 
or uh, whether you are more cautious with wasting resources that we have. Um, and I think um, when you are in, in other societies, hunters and gatherers, uh, they are more careful and cautious. There's no doubt in my heart because that's how we, how we were organized as biological creatures. Mm -hmm. And um, so, um, how can I say, uh, I um, see people in the restaurant complaining to the waiter that this wasn't any good and give it back to the kitchen. And so I, I don't like this complaint. And it's not only about food, it's about whatever. Uh, uh, our lives are so difficult and um, gasoline has become so expensive and all these things. Yes, uh, deal with it. Deal with it in the right way, but don't complain too much. There was a, I got two questions stacked up in my head and one I was going to ask you and one I thought about asking you and decided not to, but now I am going to ask you because you alluded to it. Yeah. Uh, my father fought in World War II. Yeah. Um, served in the European theater and maintained, not, I don't want to say, a, um, we, we joke about it now, but maintained yeah. a deep suspicion of Germany through to the end. Rightly so. Zero for Japan. He didn't, no, he didn't fight no the Japanese. Yeah, no zero for Japan. Father. Well, yeah. no, no, I'm not, I'm not getting at that, <laughs> but what was the, it's kind of like outside of uh, a subject matter. I'm like a, anything, but, uh, or a, that I'm an expert on, but, what was the so? How did you perceive when you're thrust in at a young age? When you're thrust into such like this this devastating situation, and so many of your countrymen mm -hmm. are being killed, your cities are being destroyed, you're starving. What is your perception of Germany? Is it gone? It's, no, no, of course not. I, I'm still a German citizen. No, no, I'm saying oh, at that yes, time, at how are time. people feeling about, you know I mean, are they, are, yeah. is this all happening to them? Is it a thing they created? Like, well, there what was, was your mom's perception, I there guess? There was a different response. Some, some of them you still, until today, you have deniers. You even have Holocaust deniers, yeah. which is the most absurd of all because it's hundreds, thousands of times documented. Survivors are there. The bodies were found uh, i mean and and uh, a crime of uh, proportions that the world has never seen in any country throughout the entire history of the human race nothing like that has ever happened so you of course you have to ask yourself what went wrong what made germany lapse into a culture from a very solid culture of philosophy mathematics writers, composers, you just name it. How does it lapse into a culture of barbarism within very few years? Mm -hmm. So of course that gave me to think, and of course uh, it has importance, always res something is, is resonating from, from that in my entire existence. And but where did the point, yeah. what was your sense of, of or, or perhaps this would be a question that you'd have to answer on your mother's behalf, where did the what was the sense of blame? Was the blame the the Allies? Was the blame on England, no. the U.S. for doing no, this? No, or? I think I think the overwhelming the overwhelming uh, part of the po uh, population knew it was self inflicted, mm -hmm. 
And um, you have to also see one strange thing when you speak about Germany as a child. And even when I was six, seven, eight years old, I, I didn't know that Germany existed, that there was such a thing like Germany. For me, this valley in the mountains, that was the world. And beyond that, yes, there was Austria because the border was close and some uh, young men, the bold young men, would uh, secretly smuggle goods from Austria in, into Germany and some of them were my childhood uh, heroes. But I did not notice, uh, I had no concept that there were countries, I mean Austria, Tyrol, yes, uh, our valley and some, something beyond it. And my very first uh, memory that I have about, I was, must have been two and a half years, um, Allied uh, bombers hit uh, the city of Rosenheim. And my mother took us out of bed, and it was in the middle of the night, ice cold, must have been March or April, still snow out there. And very far in the distance, at the end of the valley, you could see the entire sky um, not burning, not flickering, or so a very slow pulsing of red and orange. And she said, boys, the city of Rosenheim is burning. And But the city of Rosenheim uh, is 40 miles away, that far, mm -hmm. an entire city burning. And for me, it was a very essential moment because I apparently started to understand there's a world there's a world out there, not our valley alone, and not the waterfall in the ravine behind the, the home. There, there was something out there that was different and dangerous and burning, and there was such a thing like a war. Of course, we saw American soldiers coming in, but they, they were very genial with the kids and befriended the kids, and hmm. for the first time, I, I saw an African-American and I was completely enthralled. A huge, big, big guy with a big resonant voice. A little bit, I co always compare him to Shaquille O'Neal. Mm -hmm. A very, very big man with a, with, with a very big heart and a wonderful voice, a soft, wonderful voice. That was, that was for, for us... We only knew it from fairy tales, the Moors. Oh, yeah. The Moors, and there was a Moor, and, and I was completely, completely fascinated. And I knew, yes, it's true, there's some foreign countries, like Africa, and you have the Moors, and, and there are Moors in America. How about that? I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. 
Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX Off-Road Map and Navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. That particular city that burned, um, that the story you tell in your book demonstrates a little bit of the of a different perspective on collateral damage than you see in warfare today, where in warfare today, there's so much public emphasis on, um, 
not you know targeting civilians where you're hitting yeah and you're telling that story that allied bombers are actually trying to get to a different place entirely yes and they can't get over the mountains because of weather and they just find a town yeah sure and, and they, they don't, find a town and level they, it. they want to return to the base empty yeah and uh it was probably the reason why the city of rosenheim was uh destroyed in a gigantic conflagration so um but um, only later, and uh, let me add up one thing uh, with a sky in the distance uh, pulsing in flames. Uh, it made me curious, and I knew there was something out I wanted to, to understand, I wanted to learn. So and that's why I moved out, and that's why I have been so much around, and it's very strange because uh, people uh, ask me why can you say that you are a writer and I have always maintained that my writing will live longer my prose, my poetry will probably live longer than my films how do you um, somehow compare that uh, or is there a conflict between filmmaking no it is not and I have a simple almost like a formula films are my voyage and writing is home oh yeah that's your your films are your forays out into the world yeah, yeah. writing is home yeah that's a good way of putting it um that brings you to a question that i was hoping to share with you uh to ask you about like i said i had i was unfamiliar with the level of poverty that you that you yeah. grew up in um Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. Matter. Oh no, no. This isn't children. coming from a place no, of pity. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I, I don't want to be commiserated for children. It was a wonderful, incredible time, and we had to take responsibility. We had to go out foraging. We were the ones who would catch trout uh, in the creek. But since we had no uh, fishing gear, we caught them by hand. You can catch trout. Yeah, you explain that, that hands, method yes. in your book. It's like a yes. slow, a yeah. slow movement and they then a quick they grab. Flee, <laughs> they flee under under stones. They take refuge or under uh, under tufts of grass overhanging into into the creek, into the water, and you know where they are hiding. And you have to be very very patient and cautious, and you actually can catch them with your own hands. People think I'm making it. it no, up, no, but I don't. You are, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> you have probably done it yourself. When, uh, so c considering that 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 childhood, it made me rethink uh, your film, Happy People. Yes. And within the last day or two, maybe it was even our producer, Crin, yeah, or, or or Phil, the engineer here. I, I mentioned Happy People, and he said, "You mean the be." <laughs> I remember who said, they said, you mean the people that seem miserable, but they're happy? And I wondered about that, uh, or, or some joke like that, meaning yeah. I just remember watching Happy People, which is about Siberian hunter-gatherers and fur trappers, and just seeing someone carpeted in mosquitoes. I mean, it was like they had apparel, yeah. like their apparel was made of mosquitoes, you know? Yeah. But just working away. And... Uh, without complaint yeah without complaint yeah. and that's what i thought about because because um in happy people there's no no person meditates on the meaning of happiness 
No. No person says, well, spite, you know, in spite of appearances, I'm quite happy. There's no, it's just the title is happy yeah. people, but then it's this portrait of people and, and no, a, a viewer would not watch happy people. And if someone said, what did you watch a movie about? Yeah. They wouldn't say, I watched a movie about these very happy people. Yes. And not only happy, they're dignified. They lead a life full of dignity, of awe, of wonder, of nature, of uh, being out there, uh, a life that has a lot of, of deep meaning. I envy them. And when I see them in, on, a, on a screen, there's only one wish, oh man, I would like to join them. Oh, yeah. I can see that feeling. Yeah. And uh, the fact uh, that they do not have, uh, let's say, electricity and air condition and mosquito repellent, and you just name it, just their dogs, their hands, their intelligence, and uh, rifle and, and fishing gear. And they live an, an incredible life, so fulfilled, so wonderful. And whoever, whoever sees this, and I believe uh, those who, uh, who actually have ever hunted, they will immediately understand, instantly. Yeah. I envy them. Yeah. You, when you made, I, 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 I had watched your films, but became interested in your thinking about nature and you're thinking about animals like i i had seen a geary wrath of god i'd seen fitz Craldo, um which are great stories um really enjoyable films and and and, I, and it sparked a curiosity in me about how you view things but then it, then the timothy treadwell incident happened so just to give listeners a quick run through uh timothy treadwell i think he's born in the late 50s if i'm not mistaken uh he had been a he, he was a wanted to be an actor he had actually was in competition with Woody Harrelson for the. Well, that's what he claims. We do not know exactly. So that's but, that's not known for can, sure. Yeah, uh, we we can uh, look at him and say he was a failed actor. A failed actor, and then uh, and, uh, and then deeply, deeply into alcohol and drugs. So he was struggling, struggling to get out of addiction, mm -hmm. and in a way uh, that brought him to Alaska. Because out there in nature and uh, with a task uh, to that he put on his own shoulders to protect the bears against the bad guys, the poachers. Mm -hmm. Poachers hardly exist at all, but that was his uh, his fiction under which he lived, and he um, he got himself straightened out in a way. And when you look at him, of course, he has moments where he unravels and where he's completely falling apart but moments of deep insight moments of poetry moments of beauty what he's doing what he's seeing how he describes it how he depicts things a wonderful wonderful uh, kind of life out there in in the wilderness in my world at that time there was this is what i was getting at about when i became interested in your in, in, in how you viewed these because in my world at that time, meaning, uh, you know, fairly serious outdoorsmen, strong Alaska connections, there was just people reveled in his death. And it was just how stupid he should have known what a nut job. 
And then I would find myself, before you did your film, I would find myself joking like, that man would out-camp any person I know. And I would say, I would love to see you go spend yeah. 13 summers yes. in an alder thicket on the Alaska Peninsula. And like, with go a very do dense that. population yeah, of grizzly like, bears. Go do that and then come tell me yeah, how sure. stupid the guy was. You might not agree with what he stood for. You might not agree with his practices, but like, there was a tenacity yeah, and, sure. a, and, and, and a sort of outdoor expertise. And then your film came out and it's like, I had joked about it and commented on it, but your yeah. film came out and was so, it, it was so like open-hearted and fair. And the and like, respect for him. And, yeah, uh, but the, 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 the proper condemnation, yeah. the proper respect, but just yeah. painted a wholly different picture than what you got yeah. from the media, which was this yeah. just nothing but a nut job. Yeah, you know? not well, that was a small part of the media. Uh, but um, of course, it's also unusual that the filmmaker has an ongoing argument with his protagonist who was already killed by a bear 10 months before. Was that and all it was, 10 months when you were working on that? So you got to it, it right away. Yeah. And, well, uh, I never met him, of course. He was yeah. dead when I heard about and his girlfriend was also killed and eaten by the same bear. So um, uh, it doesn't matter that I'm that I differ from him, and I differ from him in in some basic, uh, I say it with caution in quotes, uh, basic philosophy. He was more a little bit towards new age, which I can't stand. Uh, it is pseudo philosophical babble, but behind this new agey aspect of wild nature, there's something which I call the Disneyization of wild nature. For Treadwell, the bears were wonderful, big hearted, fluffy creatures, and you had to approach them and, if possible, even hug them and sing a song to them and tell them how much you love them. And one of the native uh, Alutic people on uh, Kodiak Island, He's, he says on camera, there was something wrong. You do not love the bear. You should, you should rather respect the bear and respect the territory. Keep your distance. Uh, allow the bear uh, its territory, but you do not need to love it. You do not love the bear. Respect it. And that... Uh, this kind of uh, philosophy that went awry into Walt Disney fluffiness mm -hmm. um, somehow, unfortunately, unfortunately cost him his life and the life of his girlfriend and the life of two grizzly bears who were shot by park rangers who found them still feasting on the bodies. How, when you heard, how did you first hear that story? and jump into that project? Well, it was unusual because I I do things that come with vehemence at me and it was one of those cases where something stumbles in me, into me. Uh, I was at a producer's place down in, uh, in the valley, a few miles away from here only where I'm sitting. And uh, he had helped me very uh, generously with finding partners for a, a film. And uh, I paid him a visit just to thank him. And uh, at the end, uh, we were sitting at a glass table 
full of uh, messy papers and FedExes and half-eaten lunch salad and so. And when I got up, I I got up and uh, I had miss. I couldn't find my car keys. I swear to God, I was searching for my car keys, not for a movie. So I and and I had placed it on the table. And uh, I look at the uh, car key, and he uh, sees it and thinks I spotted some paper and shoves an article to me. It was one of the first magazine articles about Timothy Treadwell. And he says, read this. We are doing a very interesting project. So I took it um, and my keys went home. And I was sitting literally here, just at this table next behind you. I was sitting there and, and normally I don't read these things. I read it. And you know what? I was instantly back in my car and I rushed down and I said, this is this is big. This is so big, I cannot believe it. And I said, how far are you in preparations? Ah, we have to start in eight days at the latest. There's hardly any time left. We have to travel. And then I asked, who is directing the film? And he said, listen very, very carefully. He said, I'm, I'm kind of directing the film. Kind of directing this film so I, I sensed he didn't know exactly what I what I was uh, what he was doing or how to tackle this and I looked him at him and I said no I will direct this movie now and I was kind of surprised and uh, shook my hand and said it would be an honor That's and I made the film <laughs> so, when, when in that movie but, but it was you see what was clear, it, it, this is big. And as a storyteller, as somebody who makes movies, and also a writer, I know this is big. In that, there's the famous scene where you, you I believe you're, you're at a kitchen table and you yeah. put on the headphones and you're able to hear the recording. Yeah. Um, there, there was a camera rolling for six months during the attack. Yeah. And you hear the recording and your comment does your comment does more to convey the horror of what you're hearing than than perhaps hearing it would I barely, because you, I you barely say that comment I barely comment. Well, you say you no see. one. Yeah. You say no one should listen to this. Yes. And, Never let anyone listen to this. And my comment is even stronger because the camera is over my shoulder. You see only the back or the side of my head. And the camera is on the woman who owns the tape, who has worked with Treadwell for long, long years. And she tries to read from my face what I'm hearing, how horrible it is. And she starts to cry. She can tell from my face mm. that there's something terrible that I'm hearing. And she had not heard it. No, and I said to her, please don't ever listen to it. And I said to her something very stupid, please, you should rather destroy it, which she didn't do. She was smart enough not to do it, but she separated her from the tape and put it in a bank vault. So it's locked away from her. And you see, as a filmmaker, you do not have to uh, to put everything out, even though it was there and it uh, would have sensationalized the film. Everybody wanted me to included into the film, the distributor, the TV network, the production company, everyone said, and I said, I will address the tape because it is known it's out there. 
but I will make the decision. And after I had heard it, I said, it's not going to be in my film. You have to take me out, but I will resist to be taken out. I'm a formidable opponent. Be careful. I will fight. And this is not going to be in my film because there's such a thing as a dignity and the privacy of, of an individual's death. And, and you do not... You, you do not publicize it and sensationalize it, period. So, and they understood. And uh, another example, because I saw the film two days ago uh, for the first time in many years, The White Diamond, it's about a jungle airship, some sort of... No, no, I've seen that movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah that maneuvers in the canopies of trees. And uh, nearby... In, it's in, in Guyana, right? In Guyana, yeah. yeah. And there's a waterfall, the Cayetua waterfall, three times the height of Niagara Fall. Not as much volume of water, but a formidable waterfall. I've, I've been to that waterfall. Ah, you have yeah, been? Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. Ah, yeah. And you have seen the swifts. There are swifts uh, that come down... At, oh, yeah, at, in, at, into at the, underneath come, and beneath. They it, come yeah. down from, from the sky. They form vortices, a, a vortex, and then they shoot down and with this speed that is higher than free fall, they, they swish behind the waterfall, behind this massive curtain, there's a gap, and they have a million and a half or a million nests behind there. And I was curious, and we lowered a, a, a strong uh, guy in the team, actually also a mountain climber, lowered him on a rope in the, with a camera, and he filmed it. And a few days later, a, a local tribal leader uh, tells us, ah, you filmed that, yeah, but uh, you know, for us in our culture, there's a secret because they're gigantic snakes and they keep the secrets of our people. They keep the treasures of our hearts and uh, nobody of us would ever look behind the waterfalls. Huh. And very politely he says, uh, could it, maybe could it be that you just saw it but you don't publish it. And that very moment I said, it's not going to be published. Yeah. That little bit of, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but, I guess but, there's, something, there's something bigger that... Bigger than that, filmmaking. There's something bigger that you have to live with than the films that Big, you put out for people well, to enjoy. There are, there are bigger things than filmmaking, let's yeah. face it. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches 
at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months... I've become friends with, and my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, They're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX Off-Road Map and Navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. You've done a number, you've done two, you've done three films about people You've done three films about people who were shot down or survived air crashes. Yeah. And land in the jungle. So you did one about a a, a woman, the sole survivor from a air air crash yes. in Peru, was yes, it? In the jungle of Peru. Yeah. Her the a plane was struck by lightning. She was buckled into a row of seats. Yes. Which maybe acted as a parachute. It's just inexplicable. But she and a number of other people's a number of other passengers fell ten thousand feet. Yeah. Hit the forest canopy. More than ten thousand, I think. Uh, it came down, but but we can only estimate from five thousand meters altitude, fifteen, sixteen thousand feet, 
and she survived it. Yes. And probably uh, it's it's mysterious. I mean, the, there was a violent thunderstorm at the uh, eastern slopes of the Andes, and this updraft may even take you higher up into the sky. It could happen. And she was on a window seat, on a three seats. Her mother in the middle seat, an obese uh, Peruvian man, immediately falling asleep, snoring on the aisle seat. And... Um, she has fragments of memory that she sailed on, strapped to the row of seats. And she complained. She said, uh, people say, I left the plane. Now the plane left me. <laughs> she she says, going, yeah. and, and you know, I was always fascinated by her story because I was booked on that very flight. Yeah. Uh, and a huge chain of coincidences took me out of this. And, and also something, as he was had the seat, the empty seats uh, next to her. Uh, it's what we call the maple seat effect. If you have the seat of a maple, they have, you have the seat and then something like a wing and it spirals. Yeah, yeah. It keeps spiraling down to the ground. So that may have saved her. There were actually other, probably other survivors because some people were found uh, uh, sitting and leaning against a tree. So they must have crawled there. And uh, and it was a very eerie scene when the first um, rescue people arrived. They had actually given up the search after 10 days or 11 days. It was hopeless because the plane had disintegrated in thousands of fragments and rained down. So... Uh, there was no impact site that you could spot from the air. And uh, suitcases had opened in midair because it was Christmas Eve day. And uh, there were presents dangling in the, in the jungle trees and also human intestines as decoration. I mean, it's, uh, it's an eerie, must have been a very, very surreal sight. But she survives she survived because she knew about uh, the jungle she had grown up with her she had grown up with her parents uh, at an ecological station biological station in the jungle and then you and she understood what was going on around yeah and then you did two films about you did a a, a fictional film and a documentary about an individual a u.s airman i think a yeah. navy pilot yeah. He was shot down over, down over Laos yeah. during the Vietnam War. Survives all these just horrific conditions. When he finally gets rescued, they can't. The guys, the helicopter pilots that rescued him, came tell what he is. They don't know who he is. They find a half-eaten snake in his backpack, and it's this airman that had been missing for yeah. I don't know how many half months. A, half a year, yes. Yeah. Uh, and thinking about those, and then thinking about uh, when you were doing. The may when there's the, there's a documentary made about you making Fitzcarraldo, and I remember you saying, um, talking about the birds in the jungle, and you said the 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 birds here. I'm paraphrasing. You said the yeah. birds here don't sing; they scream in agony. Yeah. Uh, what what? But you've spent a lot of time in the jungle. Sure. Yes. I mean, do you? What is your? How do you yeah. feel about the jungle? Well, jungles, I, say it, right? I say it also in. Uh, in in some written texts in my book, uh, con um, 
conquest of the useless. Uh -huh. And at some point I'm saying I love the jungle yet against my better knowledge. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But um, you see, you cannot take it completely out of context. When Les Blank was filming me, um, it was right after we had two plane crashes, two small aircraft that brought provisions and, and extras uh, to us. We have uh, just had um, our camp for 800 people in the jungle burned down. Uh, we ran into a border war between Peru and Ecuador. And uh, my leading character was uh, became so ill that we had to fly him back out to the United States and his doctors wouldn't allow him to return. Then there was an attack of a tribal group far, far up in the mountains that had uh, suffered from the drought. There was the driest dry season in recorded history, in memory. And they had wandered down with a drying uh, river in search, apparently, of turtle eggs. And they clashed with two, three uh, people, local people, Machigenga, uh, native tribal people who had been fishing for us and looking for turtle eggs and they shot them in the dark of the night and the man was shot uh, through his throat uh, and had an also a deflected arrow at his shin and a woman shot by three arrows into her body very close a cluster of three arrows and um, so and, and we had to operate them on the kitchen table they would have died if he had tried to transport them. And I was with mosquito repellent, spraying away the cloud of mosquitoes and with the other hand, a torchlight illuminating uh, the operation. Uh, and all this happens on a daily basis. Yeah, and then yeah. uh, Les Blanc says, uh, let's speak about the jungle. So. That, in, was the, in a way, that was the frame of mind in which you approached yes, that and, answer, yeah. And the frame of mind uh, uh, should should be mentioned at least. Otherwise, it sounds like a crazy statement. It was a very natural statement. When I describe that movie to people, um, I describe it probably the way many people do, where it's the story of a, of a, of a rubber baron trying to move a boat from one drainage to the next, and it's just this impossible test. It's a huge steamboat over a mountain. Yeah, and so what you do in the movie, which sounds funny in, in this age of special effects and CGI, what the movie does the exact, the making of the movie does the exact insane thing that is portrayed as an insane thing no, in the movie <laughs> no i do not agree it's you not insane <laughs> okay it is uh, number one i knew it was doable and i did it and it is not insane because it's a big metaphor somehow dormant in us uh, so big like let's say don quixote tackling with his lance the windmills it's something described of course by Cervantes and we know ah, yeah, that's somehow in us it's a metaphor or Moby Dick the hunt for the white whale mm -hmm. um, things like that and I knew a ship pulled over a mountain by force of, of human strength and turnstiles and coiling up ropes and I would move it over a mountain it's a big metaphor not insanity because it's deep inside of us. 
and it has uh, something that I could articulate and others couldn't. But since I articulated, we have a metaphor, one more of the metaphors that are probably dormant in many of us. Absolutely not insanity. Clinically sane, so to speak. Okay, but I, I did. I stand corrected. And, and at the time, of course, there was no digital effect. It was done in 1981. You had to do it. Um, I mean, you had to no, do it the way you no, did it. Not, not necessarily, because 20th Century Fox at the time wanted to produce a film. However, uh, only um, with a, a miniature plastic replica mm. and what they called in a good jungle. And they meant the Botanic Garden in San Diego. And I asked them, gentlemen, what's the bad jungle then? <laughs> and then it became frosty, and I knew I was alone. <laughs> and I had to do it alone. I was also the producer of the film. And uh, so uh, I don't want to miss uh, this work. What? Uh, how do you look at, with all the movies you made, sixty over sixty movies, and how many books you done? It's a dozen probably, books? No, it's probably eighty movies by now. And a, a dozen books or so. Or? Yeah, in poetry, and I just finished yet another book. You you have to take it seriously that uh, uh, that I am deeply inside convinced that uh, the written stuff, the prose, the poetry, uh, has a more direct uh, impact something and it's not the events you see if you in my memoirs if you look after event 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 uh, yes of course there are wild events but it's a style it's a prose that's what what makes the book oh i mean you're a i i mean i don't, I don't like far be it from me to feel the need to tell you this but i mean you're a phenomenal writer and in reading your book i'd said to corinne our producer i'd said i'd kind of given up on um literary memoirs in exchange for memoirs autobiographies yeah. of people who have a you know a story to tell right yeah. and this and book way, but this book is those com the story the way you Yeah but this book is a combination person, of those yeah. two things yeah. I mean this book is this book is of a high literary merit like like yeah. you know as a writer as a person who loves the language it's of high literary merit but also does that heavy lifting of telling a story that really ought to be told yeah which is how you came to view the world the way you do and produce the work that you did but i have two last questions with all that work how do you gauge which are how do you gauge which are the fa your favorites like which are the ones you shouldn't have done? What are you glad oh, you did? Oh, you can stop right away. Yeah. I love them all. You do? I truly love them all, and they're all good. They're all good. There's no one you wish you could put back in the box? No, for God's sake, never. Only over my dead body yeah. I would allow you to put it away and put it back. But uh, uh, you have to be aware that, of course, I'm critical as well. And I see mistakes. Yes, I do see mistakes. And I see how I evolved as a kid who made films because I made my first film at the age of 19. 
Um, you made your, I know you made your first phone call at 17. That's true. Yes, nobody will believe it. <laughs> yes, no one, nobody nowadays believes it. Everybody with a cell phones and uh, applications. So I literally made my first phone call at age 17. Um, yes, all these films, I, I see uh, mistakes, mistake here, mistake there, but I, I accept them. I can live with it. And it's the same way like with a mother. You do not ask the mother, you have five children here, which is your favorite? And you know who, who the favorites are? My favorites are all the children that have the worst defects. Huh. The child that has squint eyes. The child that has a stutter. The child that has a limp. And I would be, as a mother, the, the lioness to help them, defend them, make them proud, shine as great and wonderful as I can shine. You mentioned a minute ago, you said, over my dead body. Uh, let's move on to your dead body for a minute. <laughs> what? I have no idea what you'd say to this. What, what, are your, what do you hope and fear about what's going to happen to you when you die, like what do you are, are do you entertain be, an idea? Uh, no, I won't be around anymore. I always said, posterity uh, uh, doesn't interest me because I won't be around there anyway. However, but like what what I mean do you do you picture? What is your idea? I don't want to get like I don't want to get like terribly personal in the way it's uncomfortable. Yeah. What is your idea of an afterlife? Uh, I think it's highly likely that there's no afterlife. So, so your so your posterity like you don't care about that, and then it's just... I won't be around. Yeah. However, um, I did something which was not in my catalog of behavior and thinking. And my brothers and my wife Lena convinced me there are eighty films, negatives, uh, mixes, tens of thousands of photos, manuscripts. Uh, you just name it, uh, documents. Um, it should be somehow preserved. And uh, I started a non-profit foundation, which is uh, has an oversight of the state of Bavaria, where all the rights of all my films, of everything I have created, uh, went in. To so go to I, Bavaria? Well, because... Uh, because my culture is Bavarian. And oh, yeah, my but I, feel like, I feel like you owe that. I feel like you owe that to America. No, because uh, <laughs> you you do not see uh, where I come from. English was only my fourth or fifth language. Yeah. I mean, but that's the you language count, you work in, though. It doesn't matter. It's uh, I would not write a novel like uh, The Twilight World in English. I write it in German. And it's translated, and uh, oh, yeah, every your, man. Your, your new book was translated. Sure, yes, that. and yeah. very well. The best translator, arguably from German into English, uh, has done it. Michael Hoffman. It's in in German prose. Yeah, but you but you and, have zero problem communicating in English. Yes, but I do not write poetry in English. You can only do it in your in your mother tongue. But let me go back to the okay. uh, to the after. Life, yes, my my work will have afterlife because it's owned now by a foundation, by a non-profit foundation. In other words, if I become impoverished tomorrow, uh, 
I cannot sell the catalog of my films oh. to Tyne, uh, Turner Classics or you just name it because I do not own them anymore. You're protecting yourself from yourself. No, I don't need protection against myself. I understand that and uh, I was clearly told, sat down at a table by my wife and she said to me, you think your films are your property Yes, many of them that I produced and wrote and directed, uh, technically, legally, they are my property. But you know what? Uh, you really do not own them. The people own it. The people, the audiences out there, they own it. They own the, the books. They own your prose. They own your poetry. They own your memoirs. So, and, and I'm completely at ease with that and uh, let uh, um, let life go on. I won't be around. Yeah. And that's totally and absolutely fine because we are made and all biological life is made like that. I'm totally at ease. I like, I got one last question for you. Okay. I haven't gotten to the end of, of Every Man for Himself and God Against All, your new memoir. Yeah. Do you this this one's for this will be for my kids. Do you in the end of that book get into acting in the Mandalorian? Or is that not is that I not addressed in the in the memoir? I, I believe I'm addressing it but briefly. Yeah. Um but the end it has a very, very strange end that you will never see anywhere in world literature. Um and it has to do with something the Japanese soldier Hiro Onoda, who uh, fought the Second World War 29 years still after the end of the war in the jungle in, uh, in the Philippines. And he sur had survived 111 ambushes and being fired at. And he says to me, <clears throat> because we were discussing time, does present time existent uh, is the only past and future and present time is a fiction which actually is and he says but sometimes you can see the future because uh, one day a bullet was fired at him in the sun very low and he sees the bullet coming right at him uh, and with the sun it has this orange copper kind of glow and he knows it's it will kill him and he only had time to rotate his body to the side and whisked, it whizzed by his body. And uh, I was writing on my last chapter. I knew it was going to be the last chapter, the absence uh, of images, the absence of uh, the human race on this planet, maybe 200,000 years in the future. And... Um, I was typing uh, at a window, it was out there, and all of a sudden I have this sensation a bullet is coming at me because I saw and somehow I sensed something golden and greenish iridis iridescent sh came shooting towards me. And I look up, but it was a, not a bullet, it was a, a hummingbird. Sometimes they shoot straight like that. And I looked at my text, and the, mo the moment I had reached, I, th I thought, I, don't, I shouldn't write any, any more word. 
And the text stops in mid-sentence. The book, the entire book, stops in mid-sentence. And that's it? That's it. Did you get a lot of pushback from an editor? No, they loved it. That's and good. audiences, <laughs> those who read it, you will see uh, when you finish uh, reading the yeah. memoirs, you will like it, I guess. All right. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, check out Werner Herzog. Thank you Herzog. for your patience. Well, check out all of his movies and especially check out Every Man for Himself and God Against All by Werner Herzog. And then do yourself a favor and watch Happy People. Yes, they're highly advisable. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've talked about it a lot. We've talked about it. We've promoted it. We've pimped it. It's here. It's finally ready. You can go right now and get it. You can go right now. Go to where you buy all your audiobooks. Go to where you buy your audio originals right now, and you can get it. It's done. You can get it right now. I'm beating the table because you can get it. What can you get? You can get Meat Eaters American History, The Long Hunters, 1761 to 1775. This is the beginning of a big project, and this is just the first one we're doing. The first installment of Meat Eaters American History, where we explain in great, fun, lively, bloody detail, chunks of American history. The one we're starting with is the Long Hunters. If you're wondering what a Long Hunter is, Daniel Boone was a Long Hunter. Everybody knows Daniel Boone like, oh, he's some kind of pioneer or explorer. Well, he was, but he was a Long Hunter. He was a whitetail deerskin hunter. That was his business. That was his craft. That was his trade. The peak of the Long Hunter era, meaning the peak of the whitetail deer hide business, as we're going to explain in this thing runs from about 1761 to 1775. If 1775 sticks in your head as some a year something happened, that's because it's right before 1776. And if you're any kind of American, you know 1776, Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, okay? There's a reason that this era ends then. And this you will learn this reason and be fascinated by this. Like, why would the long hunters who are hunting white-tailed deer skins having all kinds of adventures and getting killed like flies, why would that all of a sudden end with the American Revolution? You will learn when you get Meteors American History, The Long Hunters, 1761 to 1775. It's an audio original. You can't read this. You can only listen to it. It's narrated by me, Stephen Ranella, my friend Clay Newcomb, and exhaustively researched by Meat Eater Trivia, 30-time champion, whatever the hell he is, Dr. Randall. Williams. It's out now. Now, this is the definitive telling of the story of the Long Hunters. It's perfect for you if you are a person who understands or wants to understand how backwoods hunting actually happened in the years before the American Revolution and how market hunters, these are people who hunt for a living, how they actually went about their business of killing, skinning, selling scores or hundreds of deer per season which, if they were successful, could be more lucrative than farming. Really, being a long hunter, if you got lucky and lived, and you got lucky and had a good hunt, and you got lucky and all your stuff didn't get stolen by Native Americans, or they wouldn't view it as stolen, they would view it as taking their stuff back from you, which you stole from them, was more lucrative than farming, is more lucrative than being a builder, more lucrative than all that. In this, we start out, there's a phenomenal opening to the book, which is going to hook you like a circle hook. 
But we quickly get into this question. What is a long hunter? Now, like I said, you know the most famous one of all, Daniel Boone. But he was only one of a generation of backwoodsmen who were hunting whitetail deer for the commercial hide market. I, I, was, I was tempted to say one of a generation of Americans, but as we'll get into, the idea of America hadn't taken shape and the long hunters did not identify as Americans. We talk about that, about some of these long hunters like Daniel Boone becoming these sort of honorary founding fathers, but they were anything but founding fathers of America. These guys participated in hunting expeditions beyond the line of British colonial settlement to supply a booming, as we'll explain, global marketplace for whitetail deer skins. You might expect from the name, they were gone a long time, months or even years at a time on hunting trips, killing hundreds of deer, killing thousands of deer. These adventures include some of the most hair-raising and jaw-dropping stories of wilderness living and deer hunting known to man. In this audio original, you're going to hear about buffalo stampedes, bear attacks, people getting lost, bodies getting found, long journeys, close calls, and the rise and fall of a forgotten trade in the skin of a creature that remains America's favorite big game animal. We've always had market hunters. We continue to have market hunters. Okay, Keep this in mind as you, as you go about getting into this story. And we explain all this. You've got market hunters who hunt for whale oil. Okay, If you've read Moby Dick, you've read about whale oil market hunters. You've got market hunters who hunted for beaver pelts. So if you're familiar with the exploits of, say, Jim Bridger, he was a market hunter after beaver pelts. You have market hunters who hunted for buffalo hides and buffalo meat. Uh, buffalo Bill Cody, you probably heard of. He was a buffalo meat market hunter. Davy Crockett, market hunter. Generally, black bear meat market hunter. But these guys were from the era when the thing that the market hunters were after, the money to be made, was in deer skins. But our story is not just the story of the rise and fall of trade in this particular animal. These guys were engaged in a risky business. And this chapter of history, this broad story that we tell in this, includes no shortage of, of life or death adventures. As you'll see, Daniel Boone is one example. He, in, the, in this area that we describe, and we describe it as the first far west, and we'll explain why we call it the, the first far west. And, and as you'll learn, the second far west is the one you think of when you think of far west. When you hear far west, you probably think the American Great Plains, the Rocky Mountains. As we'll explain, that's the second far west. This is the first far west, and it was just as harrowing. Boone, Daniel Boone. You heard the name, you probably don't know. He lost two sons. He lost his brother. He lost his brother-in-law all in the first far west. And those are some heart-wrenching stories. But the, even these father-son tragedies were not limited to the Boones. But here's a snippet of a story we tell about a long hunter named Henry Skaggs who witnessed his own son's death as well. This happened in the late 1770s when Skaggs was hunting with about 20 long hunters in what is now Kentucky along the Green River. They're out. They get attacked by Indians. They lose a bunch of their horses. Most of the guys that are with Skaggs turn tail and run. They want to head back to the settlements. But three of them stick it out. It's Henry Skaggs, his son John, and a hunter named Alexander Sinclair. They go over the Cumberland Gap. And if you've heard of the Cumberland Gap, you're going to, at the end of this, when you, when you buy this and listen, you're going to know more about the Cumberland Gap than anybody you've ever met. 
They go over to Cumberland Gap and begin their hunt, but it's one of the worst winters on record. Hunters that winter were reporting large numbers of deer simply frozen to death near salt licks. And if you're thinking, what the hell is a salt lick? You will know more about salt licks than anybody you've ever met when you finish listening to this. So Skaggs keeps hunting it out, right? All of his friends take off and Skaggs hunts it out. We tell this whole story. His son gets sick. Soon after that guy, Sinclair, who's with him, heads off to run his trap line, never to be seen again. Henry Skaggs leaves his sick child and goes to try to find the guy. All he can find is a hole in the ice. And he deduces that the guy must have just fallen through the frozen surface of the Green River, drowned, apparently. The river freezes back up. Shortly after that, Skaggs' boy dies. But the ground's so frozen he can't dig a grave. So he stuffs his boy's body into a hollow log and stoppers up the ends. He then returns to a station camp. If you're like, what in the hell is a station camp? You will learn very well what a station camp is. And then Skaggs alone now, after losing his partner and his son, spends his whole winter under an overhanging rock near a salt lick and kills whatever animals he can find that approach the lick. And then in the spring, makes his way back to the settlements. This is like nothing compared to other hardships you'll encounter in this story. Some of these stories blow away anything you'll hear of the Rocky Mountains and the Mountain Men. Here's another one. In, in May of 1771, this is, the, this is a story we tell in great detail. Daniel and his brother, Squire Boone, are headed back to the settlements after a long hunt, and they need to stop to shoot some game for meat that they're going to bring home with them. They set up camp, and Squire's just heading out to hunt when he sees a lone figure coming in the distance. He's cautious about it because he doesn't know who it is. But it winds up being a guy named Alexander Neely, who they'd been hunting with an advantage on a previous long hunt. The guy's all messed up. His clothing's torn. He's starving to death. His arms and legs are all cut up. Neely explains that he had got separated from a group of hunters and tried to shoot his gun, fire off his gun so they could hear him. But he burned up all of his gunpowder. So he had no way of shooting his gun anymore and never found his hunting partners. Tried to make his way back to the settlement with no gun, so he's got no way of obtaining meat, gets hopelessly lost, and then one day he's resting against a downed tree and a dog shows up. This dog probably belonged to an Indian hunter, and it runs up to greet him. But Neely strangles the dog and roasts it and makes jerky out of it and stores that jerky in a sack made out of the dog's skin. When Squire Boone finds him, he's still got some of this dog jerky in the dog skin bag, and Squire Boone comments how it was quite alive with maggots. This is all stuff you're going to hear about. It's, just, it, it's, it's stuff that blows your mind. And I had been, my whole life I've read about the long hunters, and these are all, like so many of these stories, like that one, for instance, are stories that I had never known until we got into this project. Like this is the level of detail of stuff that we, we, that we drug out through research to bring out in this project. And there's other stuff that's going to really blow your mind because you might have heard a lot about Daniel Boone or heard the term long hunters even. But there's stuff you might not know, like even just the intricacy of game laws back then in the first far west. Meaning there was restrictions on the kind of hunting that these backwoods frontiersmen were supposed to do. Whether or not people listened to them or not, there were restrictions passed by lawmakers to try to discourage these colonial backwoodsmen 
from engaging in the deerskin trade. So this is an era when Daniel Boone and these other Euro-American hunters are literally having like running gun battles with Native Americans over access to deer herds. Meanwhile, there's people trying to impose game laws on them. There was a law meant to prevent these so-called, quote, disorderly persons from hunting deer, quote, merely for the sake of skins, which lawmakers pointed out were clandestinely carried out of the colony in order that the hunters could avoid paying taxes or that legislators in some areas had explicitly banned the practice of shooting or killing any deer just for the skin. You could not kill a deer for the skin while leaving the flesh in the woods to rot. If you did, you were subject to a fine. And in this project, as you're listening to this, you'll learn like how that could be reconciled with this history of people who are killing hundreds or thousands of deer for the skins. Likewise, to try to discourage over-harvest by market hunters. In North Carolina, check this out. They had a law that prohibited you from hunting deer if you didn't have a settled habitation in the colony. So nowadays when you hear people complaining about out-of-state hunters, there were rules like that in place then. And, and, and we lay these out. I think the reason most stories miss this stuff is because they have an audience that isn't going to understand it or they fear they won't understand it anyways. But our audience understands this and it, you're going to be like delighted in these kind of intricacies. You needed to have, in, in, in certain places, check this one, you needed to have 5,000 corn hills within the colony in order to be a legal deer hunter. Meaning they would, at that time, they would say like, no, no, you got to have, yeah, you got to have, you can't be from out of town. You got to have land. Not only do you got to have land, you have to have 5,000 corn hills. And you'll learn what a corn hill was and why that mattered if you wanted to hunt deer. South Carolina, at the time Boone was out being Boone, South Carolina passed a law that made it illegal to hunt more than seven miles from one's own home in an effort to try to restrict these commercial deer hunters who would come through an area and wipe out the deer to get the hides. There were exceptions to these rules, meaning they still, even back then, you've heard of depredation permits now, even back then, pre-America, okay, pre-Declaration of Independence, there was exemptions for landowners who needed to kill deer to protect their crops. And there were exceptions for people who needed to kill deer for food, what they called the necessary subsistence of himself or his family. But even then, they had provisions back then. If you killed a deer for food, you were not allowed to sell or dispose of the skin because they were trying to deter these frontier settlers, these crazy backwoods wild men from hunting deer for skins. These restrictions, combined with declining deer numbers, are part of what pushed the long hunters to go further and further west into the farther reaches of this first far west. Now, what we wanted to do with this book, I'm just giving you a handful of examples of stuff you're going to learn. We're talking, this is hours of material that's like expertly researched and and very succinctly presented. This is just me talking about this thing, but this thing is different because it's perfect, okay? What we wanted to do in the book is we wanted to dig into the historical sources so we could tell you who these guys were, like like really who they were, where they came from, what their backgrounds were, what their circumstances were, what pushed them into this, this very deadly, bloody trade. Why they engaged in the deerskin trade, which means we have to explain what America was then, what who Americans were then, 
what the globe looked like then, what cattle ranching was like, why there was a shortage of leather. In telling this, we explained all this other stuff. Like, why did they use the rifles they used? When you hear of a Kentucky long rifle, what did that mean back then? Now you shoot it because it seems old and antique They shot them because it was the most sophisticated weapon you could get your hands on. They were shooting state-of-the-art equipment, cutting-edge equipment. Why was that the way it was? How did they camp? Because, I mean, remember, no, they didn't have flashlights. They didn't have lighters. They didn't have tents. But they're gone for two years, killing deer in the, in the woods. How did they camp? What did they eat? What were their interactions with native people? What were the long hunters' interactions with tribes, the Shawnee, the Cherokee, who had a rightful thousands of years old claim to these hunting grounds? And this becomes a really complicated thing that we'll explain. The long hunters had this idea of this area against all historical evidence outside of these things that they saw when they were there, they had this idea that it was unclaimed. And we're going to talk, we, we talk a lot about that. Why did the long hunters think there was un, this landscape, the first far west, why did they think it was unclaimed? And why did the Shawnee and Cherokee and other tribes know that in fact that was not true? It was quite claimed. They had been hunting it a long time and they were not going to stand by and watch these Euro-Americans come in and rape and pillage the landscape and deplete it of deer. So we explore this just like very different perceptions of the American wilderness to the long hunters. It was wilderness. It was the unknown. It was the dark and dangerous, right? To the Shawnee and Cherokee, it was home. It was their hunting spot. And this disagreement takes many shapes and forms. And and we dig a lot into this so you can understand this interplay of America and Native America on the landscape. How did the long hunters like actually hunt deer? This is something that like that, that our audience is going to want to know because you might just read in a normal history book, they hunted deer, but you know about hunting deer, right? You know about bait, you know about blinds, you know what still hunting is, you know what deer drives are, you know what ambush hunting is. We tell you how they were so effective, like how they hunted deer. And a normal history book might be like, they sold the skins, they processed the skins, but you want to know more. We tell you like, like how they skinned them, what they did with those skins step by step. And we're honest with you when there's parts of that explanation that we don't know. And we tell you why we don't know what we know. We tell you why, how we know what we know. And we we're straight with you when we tell you what's not known, how the skins get to market. And then how did those skins travel across the Atlantic? to craftsmen and consumers in Europe, and get this, how did piracy, pirates, how did piracy play into this whole thing? It includes a deep dive on the global financial circumstances, the global economic circumstances that drove the deerskin trade at that time. And all of this plays into explaining what would cause a person who could become some humdrum farmer to instead risk fairly certain death, pretty certain death, damn certain trouble and risk to go out and become this thing called a long hunter. Meat Eaters, American History, 
the Long Hunters, 1761 to 1775, narrated by me, Stephen Ranella, and Clay Newcomb. Available now wherever you get your books. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to MontanaCastingCo.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount.